Welcome to the Burning Archive, the podcast where the past is never dead. The past is not even past. And where by thinking about the past, we try to live better in the present. In this episode of the Burning Archive, I am talking about the culture or the ethos of governing. What is it like among our elites today amidst political decay, democracy in decline and republics in distress? And more hopefully, what culture might offer us a way out? That is the question for today's Burning Archive. So today I'm asking what is our best response to political decay is it innovation or is it a renewal of an old tradition of virtue ethics what i might call the ordinary virtues of governing well that's the question for today's burning archive and my name is jeff rich i'm a writer historian uh, i guess a podcaster too and a very minor government official And of course, this podcast is my own uh, creative work and not related in any way to my uh, rather obscure and unimportant uh, official role. Thanks to all my listeners and uh, people who've uh, provided feedback on the podcast over the last couple of weeks. I really appreciate it. Let me also just mention my blog or website, uh, theburningarchive.com where I've been writing about uh, history, culture, governing, all sorts of things uh, for a number of years. And also my book of collected poems, Gathering Flowers of the Mind, which you can buy uh, either as a print or an e-book through all the main retailers such as Amazon or Booktopia. And also uh, a shout out uh, this week uh, uh, and I guess a call back to an earlier episode on America as an empire in decline. During the last week or so, we've had some comments from Vladimir Putin on uh, the state of the uh, state of America as indeed an empire in in decline. And I'll just play uh, President Putin's uh, remarks in the background there. Obviously, they're in Russian, so they are in Russian. So uh, I'll I'll just keep the voice low. But uh, the rough translation of what he says is when asked about what's going wrong with America, he broadly says, you know what the problem is? I will tell you as a former citizen of the former Soviet Union, what is the problem of empires? They think that they are so powerful that they can afford small errors and mistakes. But the number of problems is growing and there comes a time when they can no longer be dealt with. And the United States, with a confident gait and a firm step, is going straight along the path of the Soviet Union. You could say that's quite a warning. Um, 
And perhaps um, I should say a special thank you to my uh, Russian listeners. Part of me thinks perhaps Vladimir Putin has in fact listened to the podcast. And if indeed, President Putin, you have left a podcast, do as I hope all, all listeners who appreciate the podcast do, leave us a review on iTunes. So uh, Vladimir Putin's remarks about how empires uh, like political institutions that get overwhelmed by problems and and lose the capacity to deal with those problems effectively, um, it, those, those comments remind us that the theme of political decay is part of a nested set of themes that I'm developing in this podcast as my interpretation of I guess today's uh, society events from a historical perspective. And the four themes, of course, are imperial rivalry, which we're seeing, uh, you know, I'm recording this on the 14th or 15th of June, a day or so before the uh, summit between President Putin, uh, one of the Bernie Arkaf listeners, and and, uh, Joe Biden from uh, the United States. And there we can see Uncle Sam turning into a bad Grandpa Joe uh, as a rather classic example of the links between political decay and imperial rivalry. And this is the third episode on political decay. In the first of those, in episode five of the podcast, Doom, Disaster and Decay, I talked about Uh, Francis Fukuyama's political order and political decay and how the idea of political decay is not a normative judgment but more a sort of constant force of entropy in uh, political institutions which the, the structure of those institutions and the culture that they work with need to sort of contain and restrict and how uh, Neil Ferguson's book Doom, or, which is kind of a history of catastrophe with a particular focus on the pandemic, can uh, sort of illustrates how political decay has catastrophic effect on societies. And indeed, perhaps the response to COVID is, at least in some states, as in, in, in some countries, a example of political decay hollowing out their capacity to respond effectively to challenges to empires and also challenges to uh, societies. And then in the last uh, previous episode, episode six, The True History of the Bureaucracy Gang, I looked at how one essential institution to good government, that is the bureaucracy, Uh, has developed over time and how important it is uh, in Fukuyama's judgment to a uh, a well-functioning political order. And I examined how its history uh, is in the history of the development of a kind of merit-based, relatively autonomous and capable set of bureaucratic institutions plays an important role in in the sort of triangle of accountability, rule of law, and capable uh, ex- uh, having a capable state, 
that is the sort of foundation of a well-functioning set of political institutions in Fukuyama's view, and how how important, I guess, a a well-functioning bureaucracy is, a well-functioning, relatively autonomous, capable bureaucracy is, to to curbing curbing political decay, and how, at least in my judgment, I guess, um, we, we see worsening conditions in relationship to those uh, institutions. Uh, we've seen worsening conditions in terms of bureaucratic institutions as capable, relatively autonomous institutions over the last 30 years. So this week, we're looking to the other facet of political order that can act as a curb against the entropy of political decay, and that is, as well as institutions like a good bureaucracy or you know strong parliament or whatever, it's also the culture that people have, their hearts and minds, what's in people's heads and how they, how they uh, the, the traditions and heritage, I guess, or thought that they bring to bear to deal with uh, situations and how that helps them do the right thing or perhaps contributes to them doing the wrong thing in, uh, in, in, when states are being governed. And so we're looking at the ethos, ethos as in the the morality almost, the, the the sort of ideas that bring people bring to bear to how they go about things of governing or politics. And I think a little bit like last week, without getting too much into details of the present day, I think there is a little bit of rot there today. But I think today's podcast is perhaps on the whole an optimistic one, or at least talks about an optimistic path out of this situation, because I think that culture can be repaired through what I call the ordinary virtues of governing well. So we're talking about culture uh, now that's a big topic and maybe it's a term that might need to be defined and fair enough. Um, I probably might need to address the meaning of that a little bit more when I talk more about my uh, theme of uh, cultural decay in a later episode. But um, uh, it does make me think how a number of years ago I was working on uh, some uh, policy work in government on uh, alcohol and drug policy and uh, I guess there was a there was a, a lot of uh, discussion about how you can't just um, you can't just make rules for people or you can't just provide services to people to help them overcome their drinking problems you need to address the culture you need to deal with the drinking culture or the culture of drug use and I remember the then minister who I was working with to to um, respond to these sorts of questions 
was going down the lift with me sort of on the way to some sort of meeting like you know she was on the way to a meeting and I happened to be in the lift and said and she turned to me in the lift and said oh look you know what we need is just a good definition of what culture is go out and get it and you know put it in the policy not quite in those words but that sort of thing you know very matter of fact and of course it turns out that culture is one of those uh, most studied written about concepts in I guess the social sciences humanities uh, vast vast topic uh, which I'm not going to bore everyone with here but in the end I did sort of uh, boil it down to uh, a definition that came out of Clifford Geertz. Geertz, who's an American anthropologist, one of the great American anthropologists. I wrote a, a piece on my blog uh, a year or so ago uh, about his great essay on a Balinese cockfight. I actually wrote that blog post in Bali. But Geertz talked about uh, culture as a series of performative and symbolic practices and in a way as a set of rules to govern human behavior. I can't quite seem to find the exact quote I have there but ever since you know so you know minister said oh go and find the definition of culture and you know being the sort of person I am I sort of kind of you know went to some of the more fundamental texts to try to understand that ended up rereading Clifford Geertz and ever since I've always felt that governing that the fact that culture is a way a set of kind of a set of rules to govern human behavior is also a kind of a principle that informs looking at governing itself in that Governing is a pattern of behaviours and ideas of cultures and institutions that guide the actors, you know, as in the um, you know politicians and the bureaucrats and the citizens, etc., who are all interacting around that. And that within any particular political order, there is something of a underlying code of government, a sort of a, a culture that emerges from historical events traditions and the various stories symbols rituals webs of meaning that are spun by political and social actors as they aim to rule over each other doesn't mean there's all just a single set of ideas but there are mental models if you like um, that can be shared and externalized and uh, performed and handed down and social people get sort of I guess socialized into so for me the idea of the culture of um, governing is is quite important and really important to understand what our current situation uh, is like there and and then I, I think that is sort of what I want to evoke when I talk about the ordinary virtues of governing well because by looking to the best of the culture of 
politics or of a political order to find its best traditions of uh, rule can help give us the path out. And for me, those best traditions are also in a way something that are potentially sort of, it's not about being left or right or progressive and conservative or centrist or technocratic versus populist or that sort of thing. It's more about what are the uh, behaviours or the virtues or the qualities that one brings to bear. It's less of a question about values and more about virtues and practices. And so, again, to say that there's decay in the culture is not necessarily saying, well, I don't I don't share the beliefs that other people have today. It's not really saying that. It's more saying people don't have the same, uh, bring to bear the same virtues, skills and practices to resolve their differences in the way that um, perhaps they could do. So there's a, a bit of a contrast, at least in my thinking, between virtue ethics and values which I think is important because a lot of a lot of what people want to talk about when they talk about culture is about values whereas perhaps it is better to talk about virtues and then this brings up a huge huge topic I guess in philosophy and the whole idea of virtue ethics is indeed a whole topic of philosophy, which I'm not really going to get down to. But again, is our way out of our, our current experiences of problems to say, let's focus on the values that are most important to us, freedom, democracy, progress, identity, whatever they might be, or tradition, or is it better to focus on the virtues that we might practice that would enable us to uh, have a dialogue amongst ourselves, recognising that we're never all going to agree on our values, but we still all need to kind of live together and make common cause in some way within a within a state or a republic. And then the other thing to note there is, of course, the idea of virtuous rule or wise government restoring virtue to our governments or republics in distress is, is actually pretty core common to many traditions of political thought. It's been espoused variously by Confucius, Aristotle, Machiavelli, James Madison. Um, in its own way, it's also been uh, evoked, I guess, in uh, a famous book of philosophy by Alastair MacIntyre called After Virtue, which explicitly argues, I guess, that we need to move away from values towards virtue ethics and that that our only way out of our, our rather uh, degraded form of current public political discourse is by doing so. 
And that book was published, I think, sometime in the early 1980s. So, so that's it, this is something that is, I guess, picking up on a long-established idea and then applying it to our current situation or perhaps renewing its application to, to things uh, like that. Now, so, for example, in 1788, as part of the discussions of part of the discussions of the foundation of the American Republic, the founding father, James Madison, wrote, "Is there no virtue among us? If not, we're in a wretched situation." And I guess he was very much thinking about virtue in the citizenry being a curb on wicked government as well. That's an example. But the example I, I kind of have a fondness for is, if you like, uh, Confucius, or perhaps more accurately known as Kongzi. In some ways, uh, Confucius was very much an advocate of a ruler adopting a virtuous way of doing things. And look, in some ways, I sometimes think I can identify with Confucius. I mean, he lived, what, two and a half thousand years ago. He served in a number of courts of his time, of the sort of fragmentary Chinese dynasties of those times. And he did, kind of didn't really like what he saw. He was deeply disappointed with all his rulers and... A lot of them were not all that uh, fussed about him. And he had this perception of a diseased ruling culture, a failure to practice the best practices, let's say, the best virtues, the rights, the, 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 the true ethics of a wise ruler uh, that would uh, keep people protected and and well governed but no one really um, picked him up on the things he he went wandering teaching his philosophy to whoever would listen rather like some you know stray podcaster and ultimately it was not really until after his death when his uh, teachings were formalized uh, and given a bit of structure by Mencius and others, that that his guiding philosophy of a virtuous way of fealty, pipe, or the traditional Confucian values, I guess, were sort of mobilised into a single sort of system. And uh, I'm not really saying that uh, everything Confucius says is great. Let's face it, uh, you know, maybe he's, a little bit inclined to be authoritarian. I think the Chinese dissident Lu Jiabao, who died in a Chinese prison something less than 10 years ago, had said that Confucius wandering China in search of the virtuous ruler was a stray dog who would have become a guardian dog if he had found uh, the right patron. And that's not really what I guess I'm advocating. I'm not really looking for a, a patron amongst the powerful. What I'm more interested in is finding the ordinary virtues that can be practiced by a broad group 
who actually govern, not just a single ruler, a single hard-to-find wise ruler, nor solely by the sort of hardy, virtuous citizenry outside of government, sort of James Madison's farmers and yeoman soldiers, but rather the ordinary virtues of governing well that can be practiced by citizens in self-government. The and the bureaucrats, the lowly undercastellans like me, who who uh, need to find the ways to do the right things in government with all the pressures uh, that they might have. And over time, having that small, all those little platoons, so to speak, of bureaucrats and people involved in politics practicing those virtues, changing who ends up climbing to the top and becoming the wise ruler. So uh, this concept of ordinary virtues is something I've uh, read from at least two writers, one of which is uh, a Canadian author, Michael Ignatieff, who I have a little clip here of him speaking about ordinary virtues. By ordinary virtues, I simply mean the virtues of ordinary life. And by ordinary people, I mean you. I don't mean some other group of people who are not in this room. I mean the ordinary reasoning, the ordinary display of moral behavior that all of us display. Uh, and the, the virtues that I'm looking at were, in a sense, the, the positive ones, pity, compassion, tolerance, friendliness, <coughs> forgiveness. Um, I'm interested in those virtues that make for moral order, that keep the show on the road, the microscopic interchanges between human beings that make for a moral world as opposed to a jungle. And everywhere, in every social setting, people are knitting together what I would call the moral operating system of their particular world. Um, uh, uh, and by operating system, I mean it's a metaphor to computers and stuff. All I mean by that is when you turn the, when you turn the thing on, you forget about it. It's a sense of the tacit, the unstated, the implicit. That's what I'm trying to capture by the idea of a moral uh, operating system. But these virtues, and here we set up the question that I was interested in, these virtues are very local. They're the virtues of a community. They're the virtues of, a, 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 of small settings. And the question that we went around the world looking at was the relationship between the universal values, let me pick one, human rights, and these local virtues. It is commonly assumed that, that the ordinary virtues are the source of human rights universalism, that it's some basic intuition we have about human beings that allows and structures and undergirds uh, the idea of the universal values, like human rights. I was struck, on the other hand, by something very different. 
which is that the ordinary virtues and universal values are in much more tension than we like to admit. And a lot of the inquiry that we went over three years was looking at that tension in action. And I'll give you some examples of what I mean. So the kind of questions that organized this study were, what keeps a liberal democracy together? We have an institutional bias when we think about open societies or liberal democracies. We put an emphasis on rule of law. We put, on, we put a, an emphasis on the Madisonian machinery um, that keeps this thing together. And we don't focus on the micro-sociology of virtuous behavior and the, the operating systems reproduced in society that make these societies cohere. And I was interested in what happens when these operating systems are put under pressure. What happens in fragmented, in divided societies? Uh, what happens when the moral operating systems and the local virtues are put under uh, pressure? I was also interested, since these are private virtues and local virtues, what happens when political discourse starts to work on them? What happens when a, a Trump a Viktor Orban goes to work on people's emotional feelings. How does that impact the operation of the ordinary virtues? And then this question that I've already suggested, how do we handle the conflict between local virtues and universal values? The universal values of human rights, duties to refugees and strangers versus the local virtues which are pride in your nation, pride in your community, preference for us versus preference uh, for them. So Ignatiev is really perhaps speaking more about the James Madison, the Madisonian concept of virtue, which is uh, you know, updated for our current times and is trying to find in... Uh, the public who've turned against the elites, the sort of globalist, human rights-based uh, liberal elites to a sort of nationalist, populist uh, sentiment and to try to find in that sentiment uh, the good ordinary virtues that can be built upon and not just the negatives, the sort of, you know, I guess, resentment and xenophobia or whatever. But to he, his, his real argument, is, I think, is saying how can we find in some of the popular reactions to how countries have developed in recent times, how can we find the good in what and the good and how people are responding and, and the, the right sentiments and respond to it respectfully rather than, you know, reject it as, you know, racist, xenophobic, whatever. So that's a sort of a slightly different idea to ordinary virtues to the one that I have because the ordinary virtues that I'm thinking of are really more the sort of properties of a people doing the practical work of governing, so to speak. So it's not just having your heart in the right place. It's it's actually practicing certain virtues that enable you to 
deal with the challenges of government. And the idea of ordinary virtues, I originally got from a, I think he's Romanian, French-Romanian maybe, or French-Hungarian, um, uh, author Zetvan Todorov. No, I just checked, he's a French-Bulgarian historian, philosopher, structuralist, literary critic, sociologist, and essayist. Really, I guess, kind of a literary critic, but he wrote a book in 1991 called Facing the Extreme Moral Life in the Concentration Camps. And in that book, he talked about the ordinary virtues, which he contrasted to heroic virtues. So it's not like being brave or being unrestrained, free. It's it's a, a very humble and constrained sense of virtue. So what was it about life in the concentration camps uh, where people were able to keep keep their sort of souls together, so to speak? And uh, Todorov said, wrote this, that the manifestation of ordinary virtue reflects a regard for others that is marked by caring, a willingness to look after and even sacrifice for their welfare. It is an act not for humanity, but for an individual human being. It reflects bonds of civility that benefit other individuals rather than a cause, and that's the sort of contrast to heroic virtues. This is not people fighting for a cause. This is people responding to uh, the immediate particulars of another person. So bonds of civility that benefit other individuals rather than a cause and lie at the heart of a civilised society. And his, he, he identified four ordinary virtues, and they were dignity, so retaining a sense of dignity, pride, well, not pride, but dignity, caring, actually looking after people in particular and individual ways, sympathy or compassion, and the life of the mind. So they were his four ordinary virtues, really thinking of people facing extreme circumstances, people living in authoritarianism or in the, the horrors of the concentration camps. And I really, several years ago, I sort of had this, I guess I took that idea and adapted it to life as a bureaucrat in the early 21st century, subject to political decay. Um, but, and clearly we're not in any way talking about a situation as dire as a concentration camp. Let's just be clear about that. But there is a, a sense in which I guess my thinking was trying to find, to talk about what is the power of the powerless, to use a phrase of a famous Bucklaw Pavel essay. In these circumstances, and perhaps we're seeing, you know, more soft authoritarianism today than previously, but in these circumstances where people, you know, don't necessarily have a lot of 
control over their situations and they're uh, directed by others and often not for the best of reasons. What are the ordinary virtues that they can practice that do that thing that he talks about of being focused on the particulars of the individual rather than the general cause of humanity or the state or the community or progress serve the the particular situation rather than uh, abstract principles and that create a bond of civil good government rather than tear away it. So I took that idea and I came up with this list of ordinary virtues and they are compassion so that's taken really from daughter of you know putting yourself in someone else's shoes loyalty restraint duty humility courage what I called scrupulous pessimism judgment and frankness or providing testimony testimony and then also two others that I might just quickly expand upon a little bit that I think are very much important in dealing with our sense of decay at the moment and the possibility of renewal so one of those is courtesy or dialogue which can also be described as talking to strangers so a key part of ordinary virtue in government is being able to talk to strangers and you know talk to the enemy so to speak or not necessarily the enemy but people who don't think like you and that seems especially to be a virtue that is not as well practiced as it ought to be in this today's uh, political culture and the second one is the life of the mind. Again, picking up that that one from Todorov. So again, that whole sense of wisdom or even high literacy. Uh, you know, the old Confucian bureaucrats were taught to write essays um, from the uh, Chinese classics so that they were able to engage with the deep moral issues that those ones uh, presented. It wasn't just like a writing exercise. It was actually uh, an exercise in the life of the mind and the capacity to think beyond yourself, to think about bigger things and to, to practice that. So look, there to ones I think we can see in many many political events certainly my experience I, I, I feel just the way um, so many political issues are discussed these days or government issues let's call them policy issues are discussed these days in the media or on Twitter for goodness sake which is a cesspool and even in parliament or in public consultations uh, there's this tendency to caricature and stigmatise people who have a different point of view. And I guess the ultimate version of that is cancel culture. Rather than to proceed on the basis that 
uh, well, none of us are going to agree on everything. And so let's let's but let's talk to each other because we all have an interest in finding some some uh, some settlement of of both learning to live and let live as well as finding common ground where that's possible. But also, I think that just the, the the intellectual standards in government and the public service, I think, are seriously, seriously less than they were 30 years ago. And if I really wanted to go into that, I could probably produce objective evidence for that, but I'm not going to in the podcast. Now, just one other little reflection, I guess, here is that ordinary virtues... Are not that don't just live abstractly they're not just carried in a single mind like you know i read something in zetban Todorov, and there we go i've got the ordinary virtues they have to be practiced in in groups and in social practices and so much of our culture and the topic of our conversation today is culture and how it can remedy political decay. So much of our culture is formed by the groups that we're part of, including our professional groups. And this very much applies to political culture too. So the the sociology, let's call it, or the different roles of different social groups in the political system can make a big difference to the political culture and how it gets inherited. And there is a, uh, a book by a man called David Priestland, who started life as a historian of the Soviet Union. And the book is Merchant, Soldier, Sage, A New History of Power. And Priestland makes the argument that those kind of groups, merchant, soldier and sage are, if you like, three archetypal castes, as in C-A-S-T-E-S, castes or castes, as in like the Indian caste system, the untouchables and the Brahmins and that sort of thing. So he's saying same kind of thing. There's a hierarchical system of relative status based around social group and if you like kind of broadly professional occupational sort of social group and that over time over time in history one or other of those groups soldier sage or merchant are dominant within the system so for example in feudal europe or samurai japan the soldier or warrior caste is dominant in he says in the Soviet Union, in a way, the sage is dominant in terms of the sort of intellectual, the, the sage slash worker is dominant in that system. And in, in our political orders over since really the 1970s, I think Priestland argues, it has been the merchant class that have been dominant. So just literally merchants, business people, but also merchant-like bureaucrat, bureaucrats and politicians who increasingly value the entrepreneur, the 
the the skilled business manager who apply that sort of mindset and thinking and i think this presents a sort of really interesting argument about how how uh those castes castes have a a sort of let's call them call it a house style or he uses a technical term based on a french sociologist pierre bourdieu called habitus which is like the the learned way of doing things uh, having to do with a social practice and he says caste is the term that i shall use in this essay or book for it allows us to see social groups not only as self-interested entities seeking economic advantage but also as embodiments of ideas and lifestyles which they often seek to impose on others so what are the principal castes thinkers in many pre-modern agrarian societies identified four sages slash priests rulers slash warriors merchants and peasants and they're fundamentally the groups he talks about although i think he adds workers and you know it's in you know any categorization like that you can you can play along with and make more or less complicated but i think it's a really interesting idea and for me the key thing is that i think a little bit like what i was saying uh last time that in the political orders of western liberal democracies let's say pretty broad category of things since probably the 60s uh, since the 1970s 1980s maybe there has been this growing professionalization of politics the growing dominance of not just i guess free market ideology let's say or some people talk about neoliberalism or whatever but there's been a growing dominance of the merchant caste caste i'll work out how to say that word at some point within the political order and i think that's profoundly affected the bureaucracy and i think it has brought with it a different sense of what's valued as as virtue as what is good practice and what are the ordinary virtues of governing well is it running government like a business or is it knowing how to talk to strangers and to engage in the life of the mind so for me i think that's one of the big sort of i guess social changes if you like where which i guess justifies that sense of political decay especially since that system has been in place now for really quite a long time and it's lost some of its energy and its creativity it's become a bit decayed and it's now full of spin doctors and consultants and um, those kind of people i think that has really degraded uh, some of these older traditions of virtuous rule of 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 intellectual traditions and moral traditions of uh, good wise government virtuous government the ordinary virtues of governing well now it might be that i 
am just some weird kind of 21st century Australian neo-Confucian thinker and I'd probably say I very much do stand in the tradition of the sage or priest type class I guess but but a very humble sage a very very humble sage and if I were to articulate for this podcast a desire to have some kind of impact on the world it would be maybe to build some group of people who who would follow those ordinary virtues of governing well and perhaps turn more to a different less less focus on on business and the merchant class than on the traditions of the sage yet i also wonder in a way i could also say that that is just a reflection of a age-old tension uh, amongst the sages of the world as to whether to pursue the vita activa the active life you know having an impact on the republic versus the vita contemplativa or to contemplate issues to philosophize in the study rather than to try to have an impact on and times i feel i don't think i would be like Lu Jiaobao's comment on Confucius if I were I don't think I'll ever find the sage who the ruler who will turn me from a stray dog into guard dog and probably towards the end of my career in government perhaps now think you know it's probably best just to cultivate one's garden when the world falls apart but for me that garden and for me, I guess that garden can't always be politics. It has to be the life of the mind and the infinite conversation of culture. And that really brings us to our third theme of cultural decay, which we will get to last week. So um, so just to summarise today's episode we've been talking about the ordinary virtues of governing well and that's really to explore the theme of how culture can be a bulwark against uh, political decay and that in using culture as a bulwark against political decay it is perhaps best to turn to traditions of virtue ethics rather than particular substantive ideas so what are the virtues regardless of individual beliefs that people might have that can uh, help them act virtuously uh, in politics and government and i very much espouse a very humble sense of virtue taken from the work of zetban todorov in contrast to heroic virtues and that provide power to the powerless which i guess just reflects my sort of status in the world maybe and but those virtues need to find some sort of vehicle i guess through uh, social groups social practices and 
have a life in institutions and not just be dead letters in books. So, and that's the last of our little podcasts on political decay. So, introduced the concept, talked about one big institution, bureaucracy, and then talked about virtues as a, a way, a possible path of renewal of political decay. And from next week, I'm going to talk about the third big theme of our four themes. Goodness me, halfway through our themes, cultural decay. And perhaps that is a bit of a welcome turn away from politics. Uh, Perhaps it's a little easier for me to uh, evade retribution from the guard dogs of our rulers today who might say that I'm talking on matters that I'm really not allowed to. But let me just invoke uh, Vaclav Havel, the great Czech uh, playwright and dissident and later on president of the Czech Republic, who during the 1970s, maybe also in the 1960s, was in fact imprisoned for living in truth. But he certainly said, um, I think of Lech Walesa, the leader of Solidarity, that a simple electrician with his heart in the right place can change the course of his country. And maybe, perhaps, if a few people practice the ordinary virtues, there might be some tiny, tiny microscopic change in the course of this country. We'll see. I've covered a lot of ground today. Uh, I hope I've given you some insight into the traditions that inspire me and that to some degree I see in tatters around me and that I would certainly like to say from an untimely death Uh, and perhaps given a, a new perspective on what I mean when I say that the Burning Archive is the podcast where the past is not dead. It is not even past. So until next time when I'll be talking about cultural decay that's it from the burning archive leave us a shout out or a review on itunes and do check out my uh, blog i might just add that uh, there are a couple of uh, posts on my blog that deal with this whole topic of the ordinary virtues governing well Uh, there's one called Do we repair our republics with big ideas or ordinary virtues? And also one called from December 2020. The previous one was from March 2019. But from December 2020 on a solution to political decay, the ordinary virtues of governing well, where I cover some of the same ground here in one of my sort of early thoughts on the topic. Anyhow, that's enough ranting and raving from semi-lockdown Melbourne. Look forward to talking to you uh, next time and we might even have a few comments on the Joe Biden Vladimir Putin summit then. But largely we'll be talking about culture. Okay, bye.